That's found on page 882 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Again, that's Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. If you were with us uh, two weeks ago, we had the great privilege of uh, hosting the pits. And that was a wonderful time of worship. And uh, Jeremiah was able to present in Sunday school on the work of African Bible University. And uh, was also able to preach for us. And he preached from uh, Mark chapter 5, which is, uh, uh, of course, the instance of the demoniac of the Gerasenes. Jesus encounters this uh, very terrifying man, right? Comes running out of the tombs. And uh, Jeremiah gave what was a very visceral uh, description of this man and the condition that he was in. I don't know if you were struck by this, but one thing that, that I really took away from that sermon, one a point that Jeremiah really emphasized that struck me was the reality of spiritual warfare. And he said something that was really interesting to me. He said that when he teaches about spiritual warfare, when he preaches about a text that addresses spiritual warfare in Uganda, he doesn't have to do much to, to, to kind of draw out the reality of spiritual warfare. The culture in Uganda is, is such that, that, that people are well aware that every day is, is truly a spiritual battle. Uh, but he said that when he preaches and teaches uh, with a, a text that deals with spiritual warfare in the U.S., uh, it's not quite the same. Uh, and and I, thought to be, I thought to myself, I wonder why that is. And, and the reality is, is that we as a culture... Uh, and as a people, do, don't often consider uh, the reality of spiritual warfare. I, I think on a practical level, on an everyday level, we, we aren't really thinking uh, through the words of Ephesians chapter 6 that we just read, uh, that, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And so uh, what Jeremiah really called us to was a kind of uh, sober uh, consideration of that fact that we are in a, a spiritual battle, that there are spiritual forces uh, that oppose us. When we come this morning to another text that very similarly calls us to that same kind of sobriety, it, it calls us to a recognition of the fact that we are uh, in the midst of a spiritual battle. Uh, I don't know how often you think about that, but brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to think about it more and to consider it more soberly through this uh, text this morning. The reality is, is that in this passage, we're given uh, a picture, a vision of how Satan works, what his objective is. Uh, and it is a terrifying picture uh, to consider the work of Satan, to consider what his attitude is towards the believers and towards the saints and what he wants to do and what he wants to accomplish I hope that we'll understand uh, and be sobered by the fact that Satan is a grave and terrifying enemy who opposes the people of God. And so my first objective in this sermon uh, really is uh, one that you would uh, be sobered in that sense, that you would consider soberly soberly the fact that as Christians we have uh, a grave and great enemy in Satan. And I also want us to be convicted and humbled because of that. Because as we'll see in this passage, Peter's response to this warning that Jesus gives is a response that is uh, rooted in self-sufficiency. What we find in Peter is really a mirror of our own character. I, I don't have to tell you that our natural tendency is to trust in ourselves, right? Let's just all go ahead and nod our heads and say, yes, yeah, I fall into that pattern where when it comes to uh, even dealing with the circumstances and trials and difficulties and temptations of our life, we, we, we think we can handle it. Well, well, we see in Peter a mirror of our own character. And, and Peter's response to Jesus' sober warning is one of self-sufficiency, where Peter, in essence, is saying, 
in one sense, I've got this. I'm, I'm okay. And so I want this passage also to convict us and to humble us because what we see is actually what happens is, is that Satan does in fact sift Peter. But what's amazing is that he does so in such a way that it actually serves God's purposes. And so we, we, we need to grapple with that. But I, I hope as well that we'll come to a place of humility and conviction and recognize, no, we, we, we cannot stand in a state of self-sufficiency. We need to be in a place where we wholly depend upon the Lord. But that's not where I want to leave it. I also want to uh, leave you in this passage with uh, some incredibly rich encouragement. Because here's the thing, however great and terrifying our foe is in Satan, our Savior is so much greater. And this passage portrays that in a marvelous way. And so I want you to be richly uh, encouraged and renewed in your hope and your assurance uh, by way of Christ's work, which is made clear uh, in this passage. So with that said, let's, let's turn uh, to our text. Uh, let's pray and read God's word and ask for his help to understand it and apply it to our hearts. Here is uh, the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us by your spirit the ability to comprehend your word. And not only to comprehend it, Lord, but to apply it to our lives. We pray that your spirit would work uniquely through this passage, Lord, to meet us in the, in the midst of our own circumstances, wherever we are this morning, emotionally and spiritually, Lord. We pray that your spirit would use this text to draw us to a more humble dependence upon you. We pray, Lord, that we would see Christ and be richly encouraged by his high priestly ministry and his intercession for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us in your word by your word, because your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text comes to us at a particularly uh, dynamic time in the timeline of Jesus' ministry. Uh, if, you have your, uh, if you have the ESV Bible, you'll note uh, the, the helpful headings there that kind of organize the text. Uh, and just above this passage, uh, we're told uh, that uh, Jesus presents or, or carries out the institution of the Lord's Supper. So we know that the disciples at this point, when this conversation happens, are in the upper room where they've just participated in that wonderful and intimate fellowship with Christ uh, in, in the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, as we know from the other Gospels, has, has told the disciples that one of you will betray me. Jesus has already revealed uh, this information. And it's really interesting to see the disciples' reaction because it's kind of mixed, right? On the one hand, the Gospels tell us that the disciples were sorrowful. They were sorrowful when Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to betray me. So they were, they were deeply considering it, thinking, okay, who, who, who could it be? Who could it be? But we also see an, a, a, another very different response uh, in the text that is immediately before ours. Would you just glance at that in verse 24? There is also a dispute, uh, an argument, uh, a quarrel among the disciples about which one of them is the greatest. 
Now, just think for a moment with me, okay? The disciples here are gathered in the upper room. Jesus has just shared that the intimate Lord's Supper with them. He's told them, right, of the reality of his death. He's told them the sobering news that one of them are, are going to betray uh, him. And, and all they can think about, on the one hand, is uh, their own egos. Which one of us uh, is going to be the greatest? And, and they, uh, they begin to argue uh, among themselves. That's, that's just like us, right? That, that uh, in so many significant events, uh, in, instead of focusing on, on, on Christ and, and what's going on uh, right in, in terms of Christ's ministry, we're, we're just too busy thinking about ourselves. We're just too busy with our own egos. Uh, and so was true of uh, the disciples here. And that's significant for this text because it kind of sets the attitude. The disciples, rather than thinking on the ministry of Christ, are focused on themselves. And again, it's an attitude really of self-sufficiency. And we see this same thing represented in Peter uh, in our text. And so into that setting uh, comes these words where uh, Peter is addressed uh, by Jesus and is warned by Jesus. Look at verse 31 with me. Simon, Simon, behold, uh, Satan demanded to have you or has demanded uh, to have you. Now, I do want to tell you that the, the, uh, verse 31 is the, the you there. Uh, is actually plural. Jesus is not only addressing uh, Simon particularly, but he's addressing the disciples as a whole. What we really need, if anybody wants to take this on as a project, what we really need is the SSV, the Southern Standard Version, which would would put in for every you that's plural, it would be Uh, y'all. Don't let anybody ever tell you that y'all is not proper English, okay? Uh, but if any of you wants to take on the project of writing the uh, SSV, the Southern Standard Version, uh, much preferred to the Brooklyn Standard Version, which translates the U plural as "use guys. Uh, but the U here is plural, uh, and uh, Jesus is, dis- is addressing his disciples, but he's specifically addressing Peter. Now, that's important. We, we, we know from uh, the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 16 that Peter was going to play a, an important and critical role in the establishment of the early church. And so while Jesus is, is directing this warning to the disciples altogether, he's also specifically uh, kind of centering on Peter because Peter is going to play a pivotal role in establishing the church. But Peter needs some work. And listen, brothers and sisters, we do too. <laughs> That's why we're here. That's why we're here to receive the word and to hear the word because we also uh, need the work of sanctification. And so hear that address to the congregation, here Jesus is warning to us all, but also hear it to yourself personally as well. Just as Jesus was addressing all of his disciples, so also was he specifically addressing Peter. And what he tells Peter is this, that, uh, that, that Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, the reason I chose Job chapter 1 for our Old Testament reading is because the language here is very similar to that, isn't it? It's reminiscent of, of Job Uh, chapter 1, if you are listening carefully, in verse 19, the Lord actually gives Satan permission. He he says, all that is Job's, all that Job possesses, that is now in your hands. Isn't that interesting? Two things to note about that. One, uh, Satan has to ask permission, which is a glorious fact. You need to know that before we even get into what Satan is, is asking for here. But Satan has to ask permission. The Bible asserts the authority of God over and against the authority of those spiritual forces. Yes, Satan is a grave enemy, but you already need to know God is far greater. 
and, 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 and Satan himself is on a kind of divine leash uh, and must come and ask permission for any work that he would do. But here we see Satan's objective. Uh, and there's two, there's two points to this. Okay, notice he says, uh, Jesus warning uh, Simon Peter says, Satan has demanded uh, to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So two points there. Satan has demanded to have you so that he might sift you like wheat. Now, the NIV translates this as Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. I think the ESV here is, is a little bit better because it, it carries the sense of, of Satan. Listen, Satan does not come before God and politely ask, listen, Lord, would you, would you, would you please kindly let me just uh, uh, take Sarah through some, some particularly difficult trials? No, Satan does not approach God in some kind of polite uh, you know, a little curtsy manner. No, Satan, I think the ESV gets the sense right, he demands, he accuses, he comes with all his vehement accusations against the saints of God. Uh, the word itself here is, a, is a, a rare Greek word that's used only in this text, only in this text. And it, what Satan is asking for is literally that Simon be placed into the hands of Satan himself. I don't want to use the word possession because I think that comes with a lot of different cultural connotations. But what Satan is asking for is that, Satan, uh, is that Simon would be placed into his hands so that he could do with Peter what he wants to. So that, that needs to sober us for a minute. What does that tell us about Satan's objective? His objective is to literally do with us as he would please. And we know from Scripture what Satan's intentions are. What are they? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. You have a grave enemy in Satan, and we need to consider that as saints. But notice, secondly, what he also desires to do here. It says that he desires to sift Peter. He desires to sift you uh, like wheat. Now, I don't know how many of us are grain farmers in here. Anybody? No? Okay. Well, me neither. So I had to do some research. Uh, what, is it, what does it mean to, to uh, sift wheat or to, to be sifted? What is the process of sifting? Um, and, and we're a bit removed from the biblical context. See, now on a grain farm, you have machines that will, that will do all that for you. A combine, in fact, can do the whole process of sifting. But in biblical times, this had to be done by hand. And so I actually went, you can go on YouTube and you can watch videos of what it looks like. It's quite an interesting process. But the process by hand is a striking picture of what Satan uh, is intending to do. So there, there's two steps to uh, the, the sifting of wheat. And the first is what's called threshing. The first is called threshing. And wheat is, is collected. It's laid out onto, uh, uh, it can be uh, earth that's been tamped down. It could be concrete. It could be stone. But it's all laid out. And you have this big whip or flail. And you basically hit the wheat as hard as you can. Uh, and what you're doing is you're, you're attempting to separate, of course, uh, the chaff, the wheat from the chaff. Uh, but in this video, uh, it's quite a violent process. I mean, it's just it's a it's a beating, it's a breaking down, it's a shaking of the wheat. So that's the first part, threshing. Uh, the intention is to break apart the inedible chaff, separate it from the edible wheat. But then the second pro- the second part of this process is winnowing, uh, which is where you take a basket or sieve, right, and you and you and you. Uh, toss the, the, the grain and chaff up into the air. The chaff itself is, is blown away. The grain falls down and is preserved. Uh, if you were at the, um, the uh, uh, Sherwood production of Ruth, you saw them doing some of that, right? Uh, that's also actually a very violent process where the people would actually, uh, it, it looks like a whole technique. I would never be able to do it. Um, it's probably all in the wrist. 
But people are, are shaking uh, this, this grain. And what, what's the point here? Why am I saying all this? Because when we apply that metaphor to what Satan is trying to do, we get two, we get two things. One, Satan wants to, to, to beat us down, to break us down. And he wants to shake us and to destroy our, the substance of our faith. You'll recognize the language of wheat and chaff. Uh, scripture uses it to describe, right, those who are true believers from those who are not, right? The chaff, representatively, is those who are not believers, while the grain, the true grain, is those who are. Well, Satan wants to, in that process, break us down to destroy our faith so that we would be chaff, not the grain that is preserved. His desire is to shake us down, beat us, break us and destroy, ultimately destroy our faith. And this is what his intention was with Peter. He wanted to destroy Peter's faith, uh, and he wanted to sift him. Now I ask you, in what way uh, does Satan uh, accomplish this? Because notice, and I'll, I'll mention this again, but notice that when Jesus, respond, when Jesus says in verse 33, but I have prayed for you, notice that Jesus prays that Peter's faith would not fail. But what he doesn't pray for is that Peter would not be sifted. So that implies that actually uh, what Satan is, is going to do is he actually is going to sift Peter. But what Satan doesn't know is that he's not going to succeed in his ultimate objective of destroying Peter's faith. But how is, how is Peter sifted? Well, he's sifted just a few uh, uh, verses later in verse 54. I'm not going to take us through this, but of course you know the story. What happens? Well, Peter accompanies Jesus after he is uh, taken in at the Garden of Gethsemane, brought to before the... Uh, Sanhedrin, right? Peter follows him and then denies Christ three times. Of course, three is the number, right, in Scripture of, of, of this, the superlative. So to the superlative, Peter denies Christ. I would call that a sifting of Satan. Peter is brought to the darkest night of his soul, right, where, where we're told that, look at, look at, just, look, look at verse 62. It says, that after Peter had denied Christ three times, look at verse 62, he went out and wept bitterly. This is the dark night of Peter's soul where he thought, he, he thought, and I'm sure Satan thought as well, that his faith was destroyed. Peter had been sifted through the temptation, right, the pressure of people wanting to associate Peter with Jesus and potentially even crucify Peter, right, he breaks down and denies his Lord. Now compare that, compare that to Peter's response. Look, look at our text again. Look at verse 33. What does Peter say to Jesus? When Jesus gives this sober warning, Peter says this, but Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, was he really ready? Did he mean what he said? Well, in one sense, yes, he did mean it because that was his intention. His desire was to serve the Lord with all that he was. He had a good desire and a good intention, but what he didn't realize is that that was not actually true yet. What needed to happen is he needed to be humbled. He needed to be brought low. He needed to be sifted by, by, by even Satan's attempts to destroy his faith so that he would come to a place of utter humility and dependence upon the Lord. This was God's plan all along, even though Satan... Uh, did not realize that. It's interesting, isn't it, how Satan tries to use our greatest strengths against us. The reality is, is that you're probably gifted in, in different ways. 
you need to be aware of the fact that what Satan will try to do is, well, actually, he'll try to use those strengths against you. See, the thing is, is that you might be like Peter. You might be bold and zealous for Christ. But what Satan will look to do then is to use your boldness as a kind of bludgeon and bat against others. And turn your zealous devotion for Christ, your love for doctrine and for truth and for right theology. He will turn that, which is a good desire, into pride. He'll turn it into conceit and disdain for those who don't hold the views that you do. You, you might not be somebody who's prone to conflict. You might be the person who's patient and meek and not prone to outbursts of anger. Not someone who seeks out conflict. But Satan will then look to use your desire to avoid conflict as an opportunity for compromise. He will make you want to avoid conflict at the cost of truth. He will encourage you to be silent when you should speak up and speak out. He'll make you think much of the fact that you don't respond in anger. You'll think you're doing well because you don't get angry at folks like those other people do. But all the while, what Satan is doing is he's instilling in your heart a deep resentment towards other people who do struggle with anger. And the reality is, uh, listen, this is so true. If he can't make you openly aggressive, he will make you passive aggressive. Right? If Satan cannot draw you into outbursts of anger, what he'll do is draw you into deep resentments. And they are just as dangerous. If you don't struggle with pride, Satan will endeavor to cripple you with insecurities. If pride is not your issue, he will will go for false pride, which is self-deprecation. If Satan can't make you lazy, he'll endeavor to turn you into a workaholic. If laziness is not your problem, he will will attempt to, to use that to turn you into somebody who spends themselves in their work to the neglect of their family. Listen, you may be a gifted student, singer, scholar, teacher, preacher, whatever your vocation is, and what Satan is doing underneath that is laboring hard to use your desire and devotion to glorify God, to make you love the applause and affirmation of others. Satan wants to use our greatest strengths against us. And that's what he did to Peter. Was Peter bold? We can say, yes, he was. Was Peter zealous? Yes, he was. Did he desire earnestly to serve his Lord, to glorify him with all that he was? Yes. And ultimately he did. But Satan here uses that as an opportunity to bring Peter low. And so we see these are the demands and desires and objectives of Satan. He is a a great and terrifying enemy. But... That is not the end. As I said, however great our foe, however terrifying Satan is, however dark his night, however severe the tools are that he uses against us, the greatness and goodness and light and mercy of Jesus Christ far surpasses and exceeds anything that Satan can throw at you. The hatred of Satan is overcome by the love of Christ. Christ loves you more than Satan hates you. And the devices of Satan are thwarted by the effectual prayers of Christ. That's what we see in this text. Notice in verse 32, Jesus says, Yes, Satan's desire is to sift you, and indeed he will sift you through trials and temptations. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Yes, Satan is laboring hard to draw you into sin, but Christ is praying for you. 
Yes, Satan is laboring hard to discourage you and, and cause you to despair, but Christ is praying for you. So, look, you have two things here. You have the feverish and ferocious demands of Satan, but on the other side, you have the faithful and fervent prayers of Christ. So let me ask you, let me just ask you, brothers, which one do you think will win? Will Christ's prayers be more effective than Satan's devices? Or will the demands of Satan overcome the prayers of Christ? Your answer to that second question ought to be impossible. Romans 8 says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Can Satan stand before God and accuse you of anything? Can he bring any charge of condemnation against you? No. Can Satan tear down your faith and cause you to to fall from the state of grace, to take you away from your seat at the table of Christ? Impossible. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Who then, asks Paul in Romans, who then can condemn? Can Satan condemn? And he answers with this. Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and who is indeed interceding for us. Can anything, brothers and sisters, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Your answer to that ought to be no. Because in Christ, I am more than a conqueror. Who even though I may fall and fail, though I may be found in seasons where I have been sifted through trials and temptations, yes, I am a sinner, but I will persevere in the grace of God. Satan cannot condemn me. This is, you see, this is the substance of your assurance. This is your shield. This is your shield of faith against the darts of Satan and your hope and your steadfast bulwark of faith, right? It's, it's this, that Christ ever lives to intercede and pray for you. Just, just let that thought sink in for a minute. Forget that I'm the one speaking it. And just hear these words. Christ, your great high priest, is praying and interceding for you even at this moment. And every trial that you enter into, every trial that you endure, every temptation that you endure, Christ is there praying for you. When Satan tempts me to despair. What did, what did, what did we just sing? When Satan tempts me to despair. And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. Who made an end of all my sin. Before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. And it's Christ who ever lives. And died for me. Amen. Now this. I just hope that 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 produces a sense of of, of awe and humility in you. You're, you're, you're able to, to, to recognize, yes, my only plea is Christ, but how great a plea. And that there is no sifting of Satan that can ultimately destroy your faith. There is no sifting of Satan that can ultimately take you out of the state of grace. Nothing, Christ tells us in John chapter 10, will snatch you out of his hand. And that does not depend on anything that you do, have done, will do, or haven't done. It depends only on Christ's work and his prayers. Satan does not realize this, does it? When when he attempts to sift us through these trials and temptations, he thinks he's going to succeed. He thinks he's going to win. He thinks he's going to destroy your faith. But your Savior is praying for you that your faith may not 
fail. Christ's effectual prayers are what ultimately reverse Satan's sifting and turn that sifting, the trials, the temptations, turns it into your sanctification. That's an amazing fact. And that ought to affect the way that we view the trials in our lives. That ought to affect the way that we think about uh, the, the difficulties that we endure. It ought to affect the way that we deal with temptation even. It ought to affect the way that we respond when we have failed and fallen into sin again. Satan endeavors to destroy you and to make you think that you'll never get up again. Christ is praying for you such that those trials, those failures, those temptations are actually accomplishing his purposes, not Satan's. What a wonderful truth. It has often been said that there's, there's three stages of the Christian life, right? That uh, you are either about to go through trials and adversity, you are in the midst of trials and adversity, or you have just come out of a time of trials and adversity. Well, we could perhaps say that uh, you, with our text this morning, you are either about to be sifted, you are in the middle of being sifted right now, or you have just wearily come out of a time of sifting. And some of you may be in those stages this morning. And so I say to you... Uh, Hear this wondrous encouragement. Whatever stage you're in, Christ is praying for you. Christ is interceding for you. He is praying for your sanctification. He's praying for the effective work of His Spirit to use those trials and temptations not to harm you, but to form and fashion you more into His image. He is using even the devices of Satan to draw you closer to Himself, to bring you to a place of humble dependence upon Himself. Hear this, that Christ's effectual prayers are given so that your faith may not fail. And his prayers will sustain you in the darkest of nights. You may find yourself like Peter, weeping bitterly for sin. Weeping bitterly in the midst of a temptation or trial or difficulty. Trust that Christ's prayers will preserve you. When you fear that your faith will fail, trust in this. Christ will hold you fast. When you find that your love and devotion for Christ and your faith have grown cold, trust in this, Christ will hold you fast. Trust in this, Christ will keep his hold upon you. When you find yourself in the gutter of your failures of sin, trust in this, Christ will hold you fast. I want you to sing that in the face of Satan. When he comes to sift you, Say to him, sing to him, Christ will hold me fast. My faith will endure, not because of any strength in and of myself, but because Christ, my Savior, is praying for me. Trust in this this morning. Let's pray. What can we say, Lord, to these great things? If God is for us, indeed, who can be against us? We thank you, Lord, that no device of Satan, no temptation or trial can ever truly and fully draw us away from you. We thank you for the prayers of Christ, which transform those trials and temptations and the sifting of Satan into the work of sanctification so that, Lord, we would be fashioned more into your image. Oh, Lord, bring us to a place of humble dependence upon you. Help us not to trust in ourselves and to trust in our strength. 
But help us to look only to you and to trust, Lord, that you will hold us fast. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.